And I'm Chris. And this is Eggs and Espionage, the origins of James Bond. kind of I grew up with a rooster so I don't hear it but I know for people who didn't have that pleasure uh it is quite annoying they're surprisingly louder than I think they'd be yeah oh yeah and they're non-stop they really they, they crow all day they, all day they start when they wake up which is somewhere around dawn and then they just never stop but uh we'll... until you eat them which happens right at the bottom of page 49 when they order scotch and soda <laughs> and chicken sandwiches. Good segue. I feel like we're going to have to go back to chapter 5 and work on that with sensitivity training. <laughs> yeah, so coming out of chapter 5, Bond and Leader explore Harlem. Uh, and then at the end of the, the striptease, they're... Oh no, they haven't even gotten there yet, right? No, they have not. They have not even gotten to the boneyard. That's right. So chapter six, table Z. Greeted by a thudding rhythm and the sweet, sour smell of sweaty bodies packed together. We don't mind sitting at the bar, Lighter suggests to the head waiter who consults his chart in counters. A party hasn't shown. Guess I can't hold their reservation all night. They are led to a table towards the back of a small, crowded dance floor where they order scotch and soda and chicken sandwiches. They can smell marijuana. Bond watches the dancers as they come and go from the dance floor, the harsh colored lighting making the scene macabre. The people take on a savage, primitive cast. Something is on the tip of Bond's mind when the MC breaks through the rhythm to announce Mr. Jangles Jaffet and his drums. Voodoo drummers from Haiti, lighter whispers. The drums begin a slow, a soft rumba shuffle. The MC cuts through the emerging rhythm to announce GG Sumatra. Through the frenzied applause that follows, two hulking black forms deliver a petite, mostly naked female form. She starts to revolve with the rhythm. Her body matches the drums. Bond notes her sexy, pug-like face and thinks, Chanel. He can't help himself. The drums begin to pick up pace. All eyes in the crowd on Gigi as she writhes. They groan as she throws one nipple tassel to the crowd, then the other. The audience is sweating and begging for her to lose her last bit of clothing as the drums crescendo in a hurricane of sexual rhythm. Bond and every other eye is locked on the dance. Then the lights go out, and all of Bond's senses are alert to the fact that his body is dropping. Something slams closed overhead, and both he and Lighter are roughly grabbed by iron hands. The lights come on, and they're surrounded. Two men hold them pinned, and another two have guns trained on them. Enjoy the ride, folks, inquires one, smiling. Lighter curses, and Bond relaxes, waiting. They strip away Bond and Lighter's guns. Bond is hauled to his feet, but he uses leverage on the table to unbalance his opponent and kicks out hard. Lighter does the same. It's futile. Neither guard releases them, and they're quickly separated. 
You can tell your friend goodbye. You're unlikely to be seeing yourselves again, says the leader as he forces Bond out of the room. Sexy stuff, man. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so. that's some of that's direct quotes from Mr. Fleming. The sexual rhythm pulsing. A hurricane of sexual rhythm. It's very sexy. Tantalizing. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's also much classier than the, the modern strip club. In some ways it is, right? And yet in some ways it's kind of... In some ways it's a little more dirty, isn't it? I mean, I've, that would be... I would, I would entertain a strip club where people are actually playing conga drums. Right? I mean, there's live music. I mean, half... <laughs> and it, it's a dance club primarily with, like, a strip show thrown in to, like, get people to do in each other on the dance floor. Right. And Bond sniffed marijuana. Marijuana. He commented. commented. But Bond is just so turned off by this, even though he's Mm -hmm. had, like, his fifth scotch and soda of the day. And he's eating chicken sandwiches at midnight after he's already had a dinner, like, three hours ago at a soul food restaurant. Yeah, but he's been drinking steadily since then. I mean, you got to... You gotta keep eating. Real, the so, most, that's the only reason know, he can survive this situation is because he ate so many times during his drunken binge. I love Leader. He's so uh, cosmopolitan. He says most of the real hepcap smoke reefers wouldn't be allowed in most places. Wow. Leader, yeah, but he's so already cool. he's already explained how cool he is and how basically all black people love him because he writes about jazz in his spare time. The real hubcap. Yeah. So this scene really is, it's setting up this like voodoo motif that we've been hearing about throughout the story. Bond's been reminiscing and reading about it. But it's not till he really gets into Harlem and he gets into the boneyard that this voodoo motif starts to come through. And it comes through in the form of the dancing. And it's like very tribal and ritualistic. And it's dark with this like severe lighting that makes the whole scene seem kind of like a ghostly um and so fleming describes it with like these like bright colors like kind of creating strong contrasts and like it just makes the whole thing feel like there's like a zombie voodoo ritual it's like echoes of that um that passage he read from um the traveler's tree in his hotel room earlier that day yeah this place originally it had a four-piece band, so a clarinet, double bass, electric guitar, and drums, who were escorted off the stage to move in the the conga drums. I think it was what three-part, four-part congas. And Gigi. Um, and I love the way Fleming describes. It. He says the whole scene was macabre and livid, as if El Greco had done a painting by moonlight of an exhumed graveyard in a burning town. How much more like dark can we get, man? I know, right? Like, and that's what I mean. That's really how he's trying to set this scene. I mean, Mister Big is a voodoo terrorist, basically. But they, he indicates Um, that it's a pretty tight. You get the sense that it's a very intimate room, right? So Bond's not too far from the stage, nor to all the other gentlemen there that are, uh, you know, watching this show. And he continues to set a pretty racially non-progressive tone as he describes the scene as, quote, there were about 50 tables and the customers were packed in like black olives in a jar. It was hot and the air was thick with smoke and the sweet feral smell of 200 Negro bodies. They had to be black olives. It's like, we get it, Fleming. They're in Harlem. There's a lot of African-Americans there. 
But like it's it's those details that are so appropriate to the casual racism of the times. Right. Like um, and then he facts. goes on to say the noise was terrific. The undertone of the jabber of Negroes enjoying themselves without restraint. If he was in the fucking Midas Club of the St. Regis, that same terrific noise, that same like undertone would never be described as a jabber. Like it's so goddamn condescending. Monkeys jabber at each other, and that's basically what he's saying. Like he's like in the zoo right now. That's how every they're how not, this whole thing is being described. Yeah, they're not packed like sardines, folks. They're black olives. Mm-hmm. Like we we, mm-hmm. get it. we get it, Fleming. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but what's funny is I think before <laughs> before the female comes out, Gigi Sumatra, it's worth noting that there are two quote huge Negroes naked except for gold loincloths. So even the men come out with nothing but a, a gold loincloth wrapped around their member. Right, but that's the whole like image of the of like the savage that he's yeah. trying to create, like darkest depths of Africa. Right, and they're like carrying her out or something, right? It says her arms are around their necks, swathed yeah. completely in black ostrich feathers, a black domino across her eyes. Yeah, like they, they like she's a, a savage princess or something. Yeah. Um, being brought, and it's almost like this all kind of has the feel almost of like. Putting like bringing out the sacrifice, sacrificing her to the, and then the crowd gets like, like rabid as oh. she starts to dance. Oh, they're loving um, man. Yeah, the rhythms build. Like Fleming really gets into his description of like the rhythms building with Mister Jaffet's drums. I, it, and like Fle- Fleming writes from from almost a first-hand point of view here. I mean, I can't imagine he's only been to one of these places in his life. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Her body as she strips naked down to nothing but a little black lace around around her waist and then mm-hmm. the, the tassels, right? It says her body was small, hard, bronze, beautiful. It was slightly oiled and glinted in the white light. So mm-hmm. he's Bond is clearly turned on by this whole act. Um, he's he's both excited and scared at, at the same time. Chien, C-H-I-E-N-N-E. Was and you know word Bond could think of. Did you look up what that means? Oh yeah, you know I don't let that shit pass. It's French for female dog. <laughs> so he needed to slip in just another like he needed to call like a, a beautiful woman a bitch, but he didn't want to like be so déclassé as to just yeah. say it in American. No, but he describes her as a dog, and he says pug like face, right? Her nostrils. And then he calls her a flare. bitch. Her eyes glinted hotly through the diamond slits. It was a right? sexy pug-like face. I've never seen a pug that I thought that's sexy. <laughs> yeah, pugs are quite disgusting. This has got to be the only time in literary history where pug-like and sexy were separated by a comma. No, there's definitely some weird dog owners out there who are <laughs> writing like sexual <laughs> fan fiction to their dogs. <laughs> um, but yeah, the audience loves it, man. He says they panted softly, liquid eyes bulging and rolling. People are just coming all over their own pants here. <laughs> yeah, but like, it, and this is where it gets super ritualistic. She's like dancing. It's like sexy and everyone's like groaning and like grinding and like becoming animals. Bond could hear the audience panting and grunting like pigs at the trow. Yeah. So and that's as, as the drums go into a crescendo, a, a hurricane of sexual rhythm. He is really milking this. I mean, you're as turning this, me like, on, the, man. I know. Well, it's, 
<laughs> just, just give me a minute. Let's come back to this. He says he felt his own hands gripping the tablecloth. His mouth was dry. But what's beautiful is that this whole thing it presumably plays out all the time. Mr. Big has orchestrated this moment to be of use to him in his criminal enterprise. And that's where the table Z comes in. Yeah. The table Z is kind of off in a corner. There's like a pillar in front of it. You can see the dance floor, but you're a little bit separated. You're a little hard to see. The genius of it is everyone's grind, And they're watching Gigi as oh. they grind on each other. <laughs> and the MC says one stipulation. Yeah. She has to take off her G-string with the lights out. She stipulates. And the lights go down. Everyone's staring at Gigi. That's right. And as the lights go down, suddenly, so does table Z. All his right senses the floor. were alert. The lights go out and Bond says, wait, something's wrong. He well, he, some, he knows seeking. something's alert because his table's literally <laughs> dropping into the ground. And then a lid slams over their head and they're trapped underground, under where table Z used to be. Right. Presumably the lights pop back on and Gigi's throwing her panties at the crowd and they're all like, God knows what's happening up there. Oh, buddy. But in the basement, the lights come on and Bond doesn't get to see Vagina, which he was pretty desperately hoping to see in this situation. He had forgotten he was a secret agent. And suddenly there's a bunch of dudes standing around with guns in your face. So here he's just falling through the floor. He's got like four large thuggish men pointing guns at him, and he notes that the pistol he held trained lazily on Bond's heart was very fancy. I, if any, I've never been at gunpoint, at least not yet in my life, but I don't think I'd be sitting there going, wow, that's a sweet-looking gun, man. But, I mean, I feel like that's that says also about Bond's very casual acquaintance with death and with being held at gunpoint and whatnot. You know, he, he takes notice of those details because it's not that big a shock that someone's pointing a gun at him. He's like... Bond notes... You oughtn't to miss at that range. Yeah. Yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> and we get to chapter seven, where we finally meet Mr. Big. Bond is held fast and shuffled through hallways under the city for about a block, coming out into what appears to be a liquor warehouse. He's shoved roughly up against an iron door. His guard knocks politely, and Bond is admitted to meet his adversary. Mr. Big sits impassively behind an expensive desk, monitoring everything. Bond scrutinizes in return, noting Mr. Big's oversized head, his gray-black skin like that of a drowning victim, and his eyes set apart widely like an animal. He is a huge, awe-inspiring and terrifying. Yet the room is sparse. Aside from the desk, a small ornate riding crop, and shelves upon shelves of books, there is only one object, a dreadful effigy of the Baron Samedi, the voodoo chief of the dead. Bond's guards eye it nervously. When Mr. Big speaks, it's without a hint of slang and with a subtle mixture of accents. I will be with you in a moment, Mr. Bond. But please, inspect the desk in front of you. Bond notices opposite his stomach a 45-inch keyhole. He knows instantly it's the barrel of a desk gun, but refuses to believe he'll be hurt. Mr. Big gives some instructions and then returns his attention to Bond and begins questioning him about his intent. 
Bond quickly pulls together what half-truths he thinks will stand and tells a story about wanting to identify the source of the illicit gold coins. Mr. Big listens, orders Bond strapped to his chair, and then sends for a Miss Solitaire. Soon, the most beautiful woman Bond has ever seen enters the room. I'm going to marry her, explains Mr. Big, because she's unique. She's a telepath. Bond falls in love with the cruelty and the lack of compromise in her pale face. She sits opposite him and gives him a glimpse of her cleavage. Mr. Big whips her with the riding crop, and in her pain, her expression towards Bond softens. Bond explains his story again, and when Solitaire is asked to verify, she says, he speaks the truth. End scene. End scene. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that uh, showing the cleavage is, that's how Bond knows mm-hmm. she's the one. Bond realized that the photographs had conveyed nothing of this man, nothing of the power and the intellect which seemed to radiate from him, nothing of the oversized features. And that's what's great about it. It's the oversized features. And His head really... is twice as big right. as a normal person's head. Like, the guy's huge. And he looked, he had the face like a weak old corpse in the river. What a weird thing for people to understand what that looks like, right? I mean, how many of us have seen a weak old corpse, specifically in a river? You don't, but you don't need to see it. You can imagine what a weak, like a, a corpse that's a week old, you, you know it's going to be gross. And now it's, you're imagining that he's super gross. Did it need to be in a river? I guess that's my point. Is, is a weak old corpse in a river any different from a weak old corpse anywhere else? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. A week in the water? Your skin's like basically not there anymore. And this is how he describes Mr. Big's face. Mm-hmm. He says it was hairless, except for some gray-brown fluff above the ears. There were no eyebrows, no eyelashes. Eyes were extraordinarily far apart so that one could not focus on them both. Which I, I just wrote, he must have alpecia, right? I mean, that's <laughs> what he's describing here. I, but I love I love that the eyes are set so wide apart. Like this giant head with these like it's weird to imagine like not being able to see someone's both eyes at once. He does describe them as animal eyes, not human, and that they mm-hmm. seem to blaze. The nose is wide without being particularly negroid. The nostrils did not gape at you. The lips were only slightly averted, but thick and dark. They opened only when the man spoke, and then they opened wide and drew back from the teeth and pale pink gums. I mean, it's super important that he's black. That's like the whole thing. <laughs> but not too so black, like, right? Like we established before, he's black, he but... He can't be too black. Got that he was, sweet French thing going on. If he was too black, he would believe in voodoo and not use voodoo to con other people. That's that's the, the subtle racism of it here. And he was six and a half feet tall, weighted 20 stone. This is the second time Fleming used stone to discuss weight. He did it in Casino Royale too. Which... Yeah, because that's how the English measure weight. No, it's he's 280 pounds. I did the, I did oh, the math. Okay. Yeah. It's it's actual standard measure. But that's pretty cool. I had no idea. Look at that. Yeah. I learned something today, Ian. But he concludes his description with the world that hated him because it feared him. Well, I think it's a fantastic motive for his criminal career because he's he rides both sides of it and he suffers from something that unfortunately a lot of 
people have suffered from in this world um, when you're a mix of cultures, right? He's half French and he's half black. So he, he won't be accepted by either group entirely. And it can, you know, there's people who are left on the margins that way. And I think this is saying that he's one of those kids who was, who grew up like in the margins, like he couldn't be fully accepted into the black community. And he certainly wouldn't have been accepted into the, like the French community in Haiti or anything. So he was always like an outsider and he's super big. He looks weird. Like, so like everybody fears him, like, yeah. cause he's, he's different to everybody. And that I think is a great characteristic in a supervillain. Well, and it doesn't um, doesn't hurt that the only things on his desk are a large intercom with twenty odd switches, and a, a ivory riding crop with a long thin white lash. Yeah, he throws that in there. It's it's a nice little detail. You're like, what yeah. the hell is that about? And then it comes up to play later on. You're like, Fleming was no fool. He didn't include <laughs> useless details. Yeah, great stuff, man. Yeah, but I do love that he has what's described as the library of a millionaire in this office. And that indicates that this is his primary office, right? This is an important space to this this guy because it's filled with books. But, you know, this is his primary his primary office and it's very sparse, you know. He's he's all about business. Mr. Big goes to confront Bond. He does what M didn't do i thought it was a nice juxtaposition. he invites bond to smoke so he tells his henchman teehee miami he's like miami you can go teehee you stick around and he looks at bond he says you may smoke mr bond in case you have any other intentions you might want to notice that uh i basically put this cool gun into my desk so i can shoot you at any time but i what a nice what a gentleman that he invites bond to smoke now at least bond won't feel awkward about lighting up Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you ash on the floor, I am going to shoot you with my desk gun. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you don't use you an ashtray, buddy, that's what the gun is for. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that this incredible effigy that's in the room. And as the guards come in, they eye up this effigy of Baron Samedi, the voodoo chief of the dead. Um, and I'm sure, like, Teehee knows that he's not actually... But, you know, the symbolism of the chief of the dead ordering you around is, is not lost on anyone, right? That he's going to murder you if you if you don't do exactly what he wants you to do. I think everyone's a little nervous about that when they see that thing. But Bob believed, yeah. he refused to believe he would come to any harm. Yeah, he's not worried about the desk gun. He's like, if they were going to kill me, they would have killed me already. So he's feeling a little bit cocky. But he, they do... <laughs> They do throw in this line that he's worried about yeah. lighter in the hands of those clumsy black apes. On one hand, you're trying to say that, that these are, are better people than we give them credit for, and then you throw lines like those clumsy right. black apes. Like, you could have said those henchmen or anything, right? You didn't have to throw the racism in there. And another thing that's interesting about Mr. Big in this is um, Mr. Big doesn't really start monologuing until the next chapter, so you don't really get any good like speeches from him. But what you do get in this chapter is some focus on his um, accent. He doesn't have any of the Harlem slang that Fleming worked so hard to cultivate right. um, with every black character. It does. It gives him the gravitas. He speaks like James Bond. His lines are written like James Bond, right? Yeah. Like the King's English. There's a confusing mix of accents, well, but it's clear and it's not American. Uh, he says American was, slang in any way. It was pedantically accurate without a trace of slang. 
He also is very well aware of what 007 means. So he educates Bond on the fact that he knows Bond must have killed someone in assignment and that the only reason he would be here in the first place is because the Secret Service wants somebody dead. Yeah. And that comes from Mr. Big being a KGB agent. He knows a lot. He's nobody's fool. He's just a classy, sophisticated, abnormal, half-black, half-French... <laughs> Alpecia. Alpecetic. What's the yeah. adjective for alpecia? And he just and he just loves his telepathic hostage girlfriend. Yeah, so enter Solitaire. Ironic name, considering Mr. Big is basically says she's too valuable to remain at liberty, so she has to become my wife. Continues, it will be interesting to see our children. I, I, she's clearly like a full like a full blown slave. I feel like there's kind of like the gasp at oh, like a black guy, white woman kind of thing, like the interracial couple. But like, of course, that mixed race marriage would come with. In this case, it wouldn't be Some voluntary. Unwill- yeah, yeah, right. But he just says that for the time being, she is difficult. She will have nothing to do with men. This is why in Haiti she was called solitaire. Mm-hmm. Mr. Big was a weak old corpse in a river. Solitaire has. Quote, the face of a daughter of a French colonial slave owner. How many of us know, A, what a French colonial slave owner looks like and what the face of their daughter <laughs> might also look like? Right. Um, he, he says she's, like, beautiful but cruel in another spot. Mm-hmm. He says that the beauty in her, of her face lay in its lack of compromise in another spot, right? He's basically saying she's a ice-cold you know, B word. <laughs> what Bond loves about this woman is that she's a complete bitch. And like she's you got... can see from her face that she's just a mean, Buff. ice cold bitch. Um, she's he, white. There's also that implication. You know, her name's Solitaire. So since she's not like doing what the guys want, that also makes her a bitch. Um, she's also the great white here. Like he recognizes right away. She's got cleavage and she's white. I'm in. Right, well, he does say that's one of the most beautiful women he's ever seen. It says that in every fucking novel. Bond is is she basically gives Bond this this like kind of look. He reads he reads through her eyes, and he's happy to know he's got a friend in the enemy's camp. Right, and she gives him a little cleavage. She, well, that's how um, he knows. And then Mister Big whips her with that ornate riding crop. <laughs> <laughs> the message was unmistakable, and answering. Warmth must have shown on Bond's cold, drawn face, for suddenly the big man picked up the small ivory whip from the desk beside him and lashed across at her, the thong whistling through the air and landing with a cruel bite across her shoulders. Yeah, that's unfortunate. It is. (laughs) Eggs and Espionage is mixed, edited, and wishfully produced by Flashback Productions. Music in this episode is by Jungles Jaffet and his drums. Thank you for joining us in season two as we explore Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die, the second novel in his James Bond series. Coming up, Bond is tortured in the worst way possible but makes a dramatic escape, avoids a dampened coat, and after getting in touch with Leader, finds out he's already made plans for one Mr. Bryce. Next time on Eggs and Espionage, the origins of James Bond.